Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. Welcome to our family gathering. We are again in the book of Romans. We're moving into chapter 8. Uh, this is the second to last uh, Sunday for now uh, in this uh, important letter that Paul writes to the Roman Christians who are experiencing conflict. This community made up of Jewish and Gentile believers struggling to get along, struggling to know how to be one community and not just two. Paul is preaching the good news to them that's in Christ Jesus. is the only hope to make peace between these fractured groups. To bring life where there has only been death. So let's read. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 7, uh, verse 21. And we're going to go to 8, verse 16. Romans 7. So, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be in a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have set their minds on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in, this, in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if, you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live again in fear, or in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Friends, today I chose to include the end of chapter 7 along with the beginning of chapter 8 for two reasons. One, we've only got two weeks left. This is the penultimate week, as I like to say. 
Uh, and I can't leave Romans or press pause on it without including the high point of the letter. We have to get to Romans 8, or at least to part of it. But secondly, by including both sections, we can see both the problem and the solution that Paul is finally getting around to. This is what he's been working up to for eight chapters now. See, unless you see the problem, you can't understand the solution, yeah? If you don't know the question, how can you apply the answer? So here's the question. It's in verse 24 and 25. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, who is this wretched man at the end of Romans 7? Most people, when they're reading this, they think it's Paul who is identifying himself as the wretched person here. But what Paul's actually doing is he is employing this tactic that Roman orators use when they speak uh, to crowds. They speak in the first person on behalf of their audience. This is what Paul's doing. Paul isn't identifying his own sin necessarily. Paul is becoming the Jewish Christians in Rome. He's narrating their mindset from the inside. So the weak, as we've said over and over again, these Jewish Christians who are focused on status and authority, they're imposing unnecessary rules and laws on others in their community, they're exercising control, they have, even though they have good motives, done incredible harm to their brothers and sisters' faith in Jesus. They've shipwrecked the faith of a lot of people. Not to mention the security of others as members in their community. They're responsible for opposing the very work of God and defiling His temple. This is big stuff. So the question that Paul asks in, verse, in chapter 7 is on behalf of those people who have been hijacked by sin. Who will save me from myself? Who will save me from the things that I keep doing to others? Who will rescue me from this mountain of regret? I don't know if you can relate to that question, friends. Feeling responsible for destroying a relationship with someone that you love? Have you ever been gripped with fear that you're condemned to always do the same things with every other relationship? Or that God is somehow angry or distant or annoyed with your lack of ability to change and make things right? Friends, I was here uh, two years ago in a deeply depressing place feeling very sorry for myself because someone sort of exited a central uh, role in my life, and I found myself pulling away from every other relationship that I had. I sensed myself even isolating from Mandy and from my boys in ways that were doing terrible work for our relationships. I had a breakdown one day because I was so afraid that my kids were going to grow up and because of my wounds, I would then wound them by not being present in their lives. That I would repeat this pattern that I saw myself in in that moment. I couldn't see a way out. 
The question I was asking was very much the same question that Paul gets to by the end of chapter 7 when he says, can anyone save me from myself? Can I have a new mind that doesn't do the same old things again and again and again? And the answer that Paul gives to first century Roman Christians and to you today is yes. And yes. And this is the work that Jesus is ready to do in my life and yours. The good news that we proclaim today is that in Christ, we are delivered from the devastating effects of sin's work in and through us. Do you need rescue today from the things that you've wrought on yourself and on others? Then receive that God has not abandoned you nor has He condemned you. He has put sin to death in you and given life to those who see no way out. So set your mind on the Spirit today and allow Him to lead you into the security of forgiveness, life, and peace that are yours because of your adoption as His beloved children. So if Romans 7 is the question and the answer, who will save me from what I've done and continue to do? And the answer is God will do it through Jesus. This is verses 24 and 25. Then Romans 8 gives us how God does this saving work. This is Paul's explanation for how Jesus comes in to renew us and change us and transform us from the inside. So we're going to talk about three things real quick. He does this saving work by condemning sin, not us. He does this work by giving us a new mind that's governed by the Spirit. And He does this work by affirming our belonging. He condemns sin, gives us a new mind, and affirms our belonging. So, how about we start with number one? Sound okay? Let's do that. Number one, God, gives, God saves us from condemnation by condemnation. Say, what? But it's not us that, are, that get condemned. It's the sin within us that gets condemned. This is what he says in verses 1-3. to Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So He condemned sin in the flesh. What's important to know here is that Paul's words are given to people he's assuming are wrecked by regret for the devastation that they've wrought on their community. Their own brothers and sisters in Christ are now questioning their allegiance to Jesus because of their controlling efforts. And now, if I'm Paul, as a pastor, speaking to this people that have done this kind of work, I'm going to give them a few things to do. That's going to be my route, right? I'm going to tell them like what they've done, the effect that it's had, and I'm going to tell them to stop it. <laughs> I'm going to give them a few instructions on how to rebuild relationships. That's where my mind goes to immediately. Do you notice what Paul doesn't do though? He doesn't give them anything to do. Notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say, if you repent, then God will forgive you. 
Nope, not there. He doesn't say, if you learn your lesson, God will remove His condemnation from you. Nope, not there. He doesn't say, if you promise not to do any of these shenanigans again, then God will come to you and receive you and not abandon you. Nope, not there. There are, friends, zero conditional clauses in Romans 8. There are no if-thens. None. Because what we discover, to our surprise and amazement, is that God has already given them that which sin tells us God is withholding from them. I'm going to say that again. God has given them what sin has told them they cannot have access to, which is freedom from condemnation. See, this this is why, friends, the mind of the flesh is death. Because it leads us to believe that there is more for us to do to ensure and secure God's forgiveness, His protection, His presence, His power, His salvation, His freedom, His deliverance. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is participatory work to be done. We're going to get to that in a second. But that work is never to receive God's deliverance. It is always to wake up to the deliverance that is already yours. And by the way, uh, flesh here is not our earthly bodies. Sometimes we get this mixed up. We think that like spirit is good, flesh is bad. Flesh is like skin and bone and blood and tissue and guts and tears. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's not talking about our earthly bodies as though they're bad. Flesh for Paul is a mindset which is caught in these cycles that are captive to these tyrants called sin and death. It's living in the old realm of Adam, if you remember those bubbles. And so it's being trapped in cycles of fear and condemnation and then empty promises and then self-willed effort and failure and guilt and regret and hopelessness on repeat over and over again. This is the mind that's set on the flesh, that's governed by our own abilities, our own sight, our own imagination for the way to deal with things like wrongdoing, whether it be ours or someone else's. And Paul says that what needs to be put to death is not you. You don't need to be crucified for the things that you've done as if you need to be punished in order to find a way to please God and stop doing things the old way. That's what the law was trying to do in you, and it failed. What needs to happen now, friends, is someone needs to put this cycle of thinking to death. It is what needs to be condemned. It is what needs a death sentence so that those who were enslaved to it might be delivered from the power of it. This, Paul says, is exactly what Jesus did through His own death. That He already put it to death. And so there's no condemnation left for us. This means, friends, this means you are not your sin. You are not. I don't care who's told you it. I don't care if they had the, past, uh, the title of pastor in front of their name. 
You are not your sin. You are not the bad things that you've done. You are not the depression that you fall into from time to time. You are not the shame that you experience. You are not the failures you've suffered. You are not the wounds that have been inflicted upon you. That is not who you are. In Bowen Family Systems Therapy, this is called differentiation. It is, uh, it, it is what allows us to face and befriend the uncomfortable parts of myself because they're just parts of me, not the whole thing. They're not my full identity. And so if, if those parts are causing destructive harm, then the answer is not to run from them or try harder or will myself into thinking and acting differently, nor is it to despair without hope or without help that I'm doomed to that because it is all that is me. No. No, the answer is to believe, to trust, to wake up to the fact that God has put sin to death in Jesus. And he knows how to put it to death in me. And that if Jesus conquered death without death destroying him, then God knows how to lead me out of the grave too without destroying me. Friends, we're Genesis 1 people long before we're Genesis 3. Our Bibles don't begin in Genesis 3. So receive the good news today that in Christ Jesus we are delivered freed from the devastating effects of sin's work in us and through us. Where do you need rescue from the things that you've wrought on yourself and on others? God has not abandoned you, nor has He condemned you. But He has put sin to death and given those who see no way out new life. So set your mind on the Spirit today and allow Him to lead you to the security of forgiveness, life, peace. They're yours. They're yours because of your adoption as children. So God saves us from condemnation by condemning not us, but the sin at work in us so that He can give us a new mind that's now governed by a new acting agent called the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead. Paul uses all kinds of different language to describe the same reality. So he says in verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So the mind that is controlled by, activated by the flesh, is set on death, on the things that I've done wrong and the things that I perceive you've done wrong to me. It's caught up in the cycles of wrongdoing. Who's responsible and who, who needs condemnation and punishment? And how will they receive it? But the mind that's governed by the Spirit, it breaks those cycles so that we can receive life and peace, shalom, rectification. It's, not, it's focused on the things that God has done to set you and me right again and how He's working life even in the midst of pain. Peace in the midst of war. Rectification in the midst of hostility. It looks and sees and perceives the ways that God is joining broken people and taking their pain and their sin into Himself. 
In other words, the Spirit doesn't come to bring guilt, shame, and fear. Those are the tools of sin and death. If you think God picks up the tools of the enemy and uses them for your flourishing, think again. Think again. But what we do find is that every moment of our lives, even the messed up ones that trigger those emotions in us, well, those are the wide open spaces where we get to encounter the presence of God. See, there's a misconception up and running uh, in much of the Christian church in America that goes something like this. God cannot look upon sin. And therefore, if we sin, God cannot look upon us and will reject us from His presence. Did you ever hear that? It, uh, it comes from a mistranslation of the King James Version of the Bible of Habakkuk 1 verse 13. And it gives us the impression that when we sin and err, that rather than moving towards us with grace, God leaves us to figure it out on our own. How messed up is that? It's like we have some lesson that He's left us with and we're in a cosmic timeout until we get it through our own thick skulls. Or that He's like uh, proctoring an exam. You know? He's like in the room, but we're the one taking the test. And we're left to find the right answers on our own and turn in our work when we figured it out. And only then will then, He will then unlock the door and let us out into the rest of our lives. You see the destructive work that this mentality does? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Paul assumes a different picture. Look at verse 10 of Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, where is Christ? He's not at a desk in the front of the classroom waiting for you to succeed at this test. He lives and breathes in you. And the more you experience the weight of your sin, the closer He comes to you to rescue you from that situation. So even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. The Spirit is right there. Yes, you experience the ramifications of sin and death in your life. Of course you do. You're a human being that's been broken by these things. But that's not the only thing at work in your life. Christ lives in you. And He hasn't left you to do the work on your own. He's not teaching you some abstract lesson that doesn't include His presence in you and with you and for you. And so even if even your, condom, your, your self-condemnation and shame is an opportunity for life and renewal. Yes, sin tells you a different story. It tells you a different story every day. But that story is not the truth. Don't use the Bible to do sin's work. Do you feel condemned today? Do you hold regrets? Do you feel that God is withholding something from you until you learn your lesson? Until you change or grow or pass the test? Friends, turn that feeling into a prayer. You know what I mean by that? Express that angst, that that emotional distress 
turn it from an inward feeling that you have to resolve on your own in order to get back to God. Simply allow God into the experience that you're already having because He's there already. This is God's love for you. And this is how God delivers you from the devastating effects of sin's work in you and through you. Do you need rescue today? Good news is that God has not abandoned you, nor has He condemned you. In fact, He's put sin to death and has given those who see no way out new life. So set your mind on the Spirit today and allow Him to lead you into the security of forgiveness, life, and peace because they're yours. They're yours because of your adoption as God's children. And that's the last piece that Paul talks about here. That God condemns uh, sin in us to give us a new mind so that the Spirit that governs that new mind can, before all else, affirm our belonging and our belovedness. That's the first work that the Spirit of God wants to do. So that's why he says in verses 14 to 16, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See, it's no um, accident that Paul goes in this direction. These people uh, of these Roman house churches, the ones who are responsible for making others feel like they don't belong, they're the very people that need to be affirmed that they belong and are beloved too. Now why is that? You remember their story at all? Uh, these Jewish believers in Jesus, what happened to them before this letter? Well, they were the ones that built the church in Rome. They were the first ones who believed in the message of Jesus. But because of the, uh, an outbreak of uh, persecution in the city, all the Jews, not just the Christian ones, but all of them were kicked out of the city. They were exiled from the capital of Rome for, ten, for like 10 years. And so they come back in, and the church has continued on, but now it's the Gentiles that have carried that torch forward, and they're rejoining the church that they were once at the center of. Now they're the marginalized community rather than the ones that hold the power. How would you feel? How would you feel if you're like an elder or a deacon in a church? You leave for 10 years and you come back and nobody knows your name. You're struggling to figure out how you fit in this new community. Of course you would feel like you don't belong. Like you're a second-class citizen. And one of the, the, the ways that sin capitalizes on our insecurity is that it, it, it teaches us to, to regain our security by making others insecure. See, those who have an insecure attachment to, to God and to other people, they end up subjecting others to the same insecurity that they feel. Those of you who grew up in abusive family systems, you know this too well. And Paul knows it too. 
That's the amazing thing. Paul sees it too. He's sensitive to their trauma. He realizes that the way back for them is not to make their attachment even less secure through condemnation, because the Spirit wouldn't do that. But rather, he rebuilds their attachment and says, you're children of God. You're not here because you planted this thing. You're not here because you keep the law better than the Gentiles who took over in your place. You're here because God adopted you as His children and He loves you. And He cares for you. And He's leading you together into goodness. Now let that security displace the fear that you feel when you think about the fact that you don't belong. See, it's, it's only as they remember their complete security, sealed with the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that they'll be able to let go of their fear that the Gentiles are going to outnumber them or outpower them in this new community. It's only as they get in touch with their true identity that they'll look at these other people not, with, not as condemnation to be defeated, but as family to be welcomed and embraced. I love the work of Henry Nouwen. He talks about this idea of belovedness all the time. It's one of my favorite authors, and he says it this way. He says, every time, every time you feel hurt, offended, rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in His everlasting embrace. The good news that we proclaim today is that this is who you are. And in Christ, you are delivered from the devastating effects of sin's work in and through you because they are not you, family. God has not abandoned you, nor has he condemned you, but he has put a new spirit in you that puts sin to death and gives hopeless people a way out. So set your mind on the spirit today and allow him to give to you the gift of security in your forgiveness, in your life, and the peace that he wants to bring because they're all yours as adopted children. You are heirs. Along with Christ, you get everything that Christ got. They're all yours too. So as we, uh, we often respond to good news, so as we hear the good news, we don't just uh, think good thoughts about it and feel warm fuzzies about it. Those are good things too. Think good thoughts and feel warm fuzzies. I hope you feel them. Um, I'll, I'll chalk that up to the work of the Spirit too. But as I said before, we have a, we have a participatory response when we hear good news. Every time Jesus brings good news into somebody's life, he always asks them to respond in some way that galvanizes the fact that they've woken up to this new reality. So when somebody wants new sight, he tells them to go and rub mud in their eyes, right? <laughs> because it's, a, it's an act of trust in keeping with the good news that Jesus can be trusted with his promises. So... There's several ways that we could do that. 
uh, prayer is going to be one way. But the one way that I was thinking about this week that we do every week, and this is why we do it every week, is we come to the tables. The table is the family table of God. It is the place where, as one theologian said, we receive what we are and we become what we behold. I love that. That's what's happening when we come forward. We are God's beloved with the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead alive in us. And so we come. We are the body of Christ who, yes, is broken, but is now in our brokenness, broken for the sake of the world. That's who we are. And so we come. We are the blood of Christ that flows into our relationships to bring the healing and forgiveness that we ourselves have received. And so we come and we behold what we are. And our bodies now are not just bodies of condemnation subject to death, but they are temples of the Holy Spirit, meeting places of God, where God is not waiting for us to believe or achieve something, but he's waiting for us to wake up to the fact that he's already here among us. And so we come. And when we come to the table, we come to receive what we are. And when we leave, we take hold of who God has made us. So where do you need to take hold of him today? Where do you need deliverance from condemnation Where do you need a mind that isn't bound to the same perspective on your brokenness and your wounds and your sin? Where do you need affirmation that God isn't just tolerating you, but He is absolutely madly in love with you? This morning we're going to pray and ask that we might receive who we are. Sound good? Father, we do come to you not as beggars who um, don't have access to the love and the grace of God, but as children, heirs of Christ, who receive by rights everything that belonged to him. God, if we feel like we're under condemnation, would we turn that condemnation into a prayer? If we feel like we're alone, would we turn that into a cry? presence. Jesus, we trust that you are present and at work, that you stand ready to do um, things that we couldn't even think to ask or imagine. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust you just with one simple area of our hearts and our life, whatever seems appropriate to us in this moment. We invite you in and we wake up to the good news that you're here in Jesus' name. Amen.